Will you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1? And we'll be looking at several verses in the first chapter of the Bible, so we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word to follow along. So these brothers are going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those Bibles to you that you can keep as our gift to you. So please consider that yours and bring it with you next week. Genesis chapter 1. Self-professed agnostic, the late Carl Sagan, said, The world that we live on is a tiny and insignificant part of a vast collection of worlds. Earth is somewhere out in the galactic boondocks, the extreme suburbs where the action isn't. We are situated in a very unremarkable, unprepossessing location in this great Milky Way galaxy. And you know, as much as I hate to admit it, he appears to be right. Because the universe is incomprehensively vast. And just how big is the universe? Well, if you were traveling at the speed of light, and the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. If you were traveling at the speed of light, you could circle the earth seven times in one second. But to travel across the known universe at the speed of light would take at least 28 billion years. That's how vast our universe is. And we talk about God fixing his attention here on us. For people who are known for humility, it does not seem particularly humble to say that we're the object of a creator's attention, a creator whose creation is so large as to seem almost infinite from our perspective. Stephen Hawking, the infamous atheist, said, We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very over a very average star in the outer suburb of one of a hundred billion galaxies. So it's difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. And yet, with all of that, Christians have claimed, we're told, based ostensibly on the teaching of the Bible, that the earth is actually the center of the universe, or at least the center of our galaxy, and all things revolve around it. So the Bible records a miracle in the book of Joshua in these words. The sun stood still. But of course we know that the earth revolves around the sun. The earth moves. So how is it the Bible can say the sun stood still? And add to this that for centuries the church persecuted scientists who simply stated what their observations required. That, in fact, the sun is the center of our galaxy, not the earth. In fact, in the 17th century, the teachings of Galileo were condemned by the Pope for teaching the ideas of Nicholas Copernicus that placed the sun at the center. And that condemnation of Galileo was not rescinded until 1965. Now, all of this raises the question of the truthfulness of the Bible. And then there are the questions about the Bible's veracity when compared to science. Does the Bible teach, in fact, that the sun revolves around the earth and that our galaxy is geocentric, that is centered on the earth rather than heliocentric, centered on the sun? 
And the implications of our being just one outpost in an enormous universe raises the question, is our planet really special? Are we really special? Let's ask God to help us as we explore those questions. Our Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here. To be here in this sacred moment to open your word and to seek to hear from you. We ask you to help us to do that. Help us to do that by making clear what you have intended to communicate. And then by being open recipients, glad recipients of your truth who seek to apply it to our lives and go away changed to better serve you, our creator. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Each Sunday, we place in your program an outline so that you can follow along on the message. And we have one of those in your program today. If you'll take a look at that, I want to make a couple of major points from the first chapter of Genesis. The first is this, that God is above his creation. God is above his creation. If you look in verse 14, as today we look at days four and five of creation, God is above his creation. And verse 14 begins this way, and God said, and as you read through this opening chapter of God's word, God is undeniably the star of this show. In fact, God is referenced in verse 14, in verse 16, in verse 17, 18, 20, 21, and 22. As God on these two days of the creation week creates, as we will see, the stars, the sun, and the moon, he is central to all of this. And so, contrary to pagan religions that were many and numerous at the time that this was written, 1500 B.C. There were many pagan religions that believed in something called theogony. Theogony is the creation of the gods who are personified in the various elements of nature. And so a star would have a god named for it. The sun had a god named for it. The moon had a god named for it. But in the Bible, God is emphasized in the very first chapter, the very first verse of the very first chapter, in the beginning God, and then throughout, because God is not part of his creation. He's not personified in his creation. God is independent, in fact, of what he created. And so the creation exercises no influence over God. Now, there are a number of implications of that. I'll just give you one. That means that God is what theologians call immutable. That is, he does not mutate, which means he does not change. The immutability of God means God does not change. And because God is above his creation, God is independent of what he has created, there is no one and no thing in all creation that can impose anything on God that would cause him to change. And that's why, then, you can be assured that God is immutable. And because God is immutable, what we see of God's actions in the first part of the Bible, even in this first chapter of your Bible, are then going to be consistent later because he does not change. His character remains the same. Nothing limits him and nothing imposes on him such that he would change. And so the Bible says very directly in Malachi 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, you think about how different that is than we creatures. 
we change. And because we change, we can make promises that we intend to fulfill, but are unable to fulfill because something changed. I can tell you that this weekend I'm going to help you move. And then I can get injured. Something changed. That imposed upon me a liability that keeps me from being able to fulfill my promise to you. Or I could fake that I was injured. And God can't do either one of those. God's not going to get injured. And God's not going to fake that he was injured because God cannot, cannot lie. Now, this is all very good for us because there will never be anything that occurs in the future to prevent God from fulfilling his promises. And so every promise that God has made to us and for us in the Bible, he will fulfill and nothing, no thing and no one can keep him from doing so. Now, that is a comfort. It's also a warning. Because God promises he will judge. God promises he will come again. And no one and no thing will prevent that from happening either. God is without change. And in the opening chapter of the word of God, as God creates all things, he wants to make clear that he is above his creation. No theogony. He is not part of the creation and he is not limited by it. And because that's true, because God is not changed by, nothing can be imposed on God from his Creatures and his creation. The Bible says in your New Testament, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That means his character is the same. Jesus Christ has always been God from all eternity. And the God who came and died for us in the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. The character revealed there is the same character that God has always had and always will have. Because God rules over his creation, he is above his creation. Then one other very quick implication of this, friends, is this rules out astrology. Now, I don't want to know if we have any amateur astrologers here. But if we do, stop. The Bible condemns in no uncertain terms looking to the stars for information, looking to the stars for revelation. The God who made the stars gives you your direction and your information. And we're going to see what God roles God has assigned to those stars, and it is not to reveal to you your future or anything else other than God. So God is above his creation, and I want to show you a couple of ways in which he's above his creation in your outline. I say he is over his creation. He is over his creation. I want to see that first by dealing with the sun, the sun beginning in verse 16, because the creation of the sun on the fourth day of the creation week has caused some confusion since in the first three days. In fact, on day three, as we saw last week, you have the creation of plants and and vegetation and you, you don't have the creation of the sun until the fourth day. So verse 16 says, God made two great lights. Verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set them in the vault. And from here on out, if we encounter that word vault, as last week, I'll read the word expanse. That's just more helpful to me 
Some translations use expanse. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So God creates the sun on the fourth day. Now, why? We saw, if you were with us a few weeks ago, on day one of creation, in verse number five of Genesis chapter one, God created light. God said, let there be light, and it was so. So if God created light just a few days earlier, why did he wait until the fourth day to create the sun? If the sun's going to take over the job after that anyway, God already had light for those plants and vegetation created on day three because he created light on day one. But why didn't he just create the sun? Why wait until day four? Here's why I believe that's the case. Because God is, in effect, putting the sun in its place. And God is making sure that everyone who reads this account knows that God doesn't need the sun. And the sun is not to be worshipped. God can get along just fine without the sun. It's already happened for three days. And in fact, in the future, we saw in the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible says there will be no sun. And God himself will be the light. And so God does not need the sun, and he makes that point by waiting until day four before the sun even makes its appearance. How shameful it is then that people worship the sun, and worship things that God has made. You know, friends, God has a way of putting things and people in their place. And their place, our place, is always under him. Because he is above creation. In your New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the great apostle speaks of experience that he had. Where God, in effect, put the great Apostle Paul in his place, as it were. You remember what Paul said? He said, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. I just say to you, dear friend, you were made, I was made, all things were made to be under God. God is above his creation. And the moment you begin to step out of that, or the moment God sees that you will in the future, God will bring something to put you in your place. And God's rightful place is above his creation. So what was this whole thing then about with the sun standing still in Joshua? Well, that is what's called a relative frame of reference. That is a frame of reference relative to a certain thing. And so relative to the way we see the sun from earth as the earth moves it looks like actually the sun is moving doesn't it and so we actually say things like what time is sunrise now technically you lied when you said the sun rose because the sun didn't rise the earth moved and it looked like that and the sun doesn't actually set but as the earth rotates it looks that way and so when joshua spoke of the sun standing still. It wasn't that the sun stopped moving. It was actually from that frame of reference, the earth in a miracle of God had stopped moving for that period of time. And I had said in the introduction that it is claimed that Christians for centuries had persecuted scientists 
Scientists who were observing the fact that the earth was not the center of the universe or even of our of our galaxy. And so secular scientists, and I was told this when I was in college, that Christianity and the church persecuted Galileo in the Galileo affair and did so because he was simply trying to follow science. Well, if you've ever been taught that, if you've been persecuted or being persecuted in college by a professor who's claiming that, please understand that Christians had already decided this issue centuries before Galileo. Here's just one example. John Buridan, in the 14th century, a full 200 years before Galileo, argued that the heavens did not revolve around the earth once per day, as some had thought. Rather, the earth rotated instead, since it, the earth, was so tiny by comparison to the enormous heavens. This Christian scientist had it right 200 years before Galileo. And in fact, many, many Christians supported Galileo. So why was it that Galileo was condemned by the Pope? He was condemned by the Pope not because of his science. It was because of politics. If you want some reading on that, I'll be happy to give it to you. I don't have time to go through that now. So God is above his creation. God is over his creation. But I say in your outline as well, he's over it in that he assigns its roles. He assigns its roles. Now verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let those lights serve as signs to mark sacred times, that is seasons, and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God creates these lights, these luminaries. And it is God who gives them their instructions. God assigns their their roles. And he gives several here. They are to mark seasons. Or excuse me, they're service signs, first of all. These signs are navigational signs. People were able to travel as a result of these signs in the sky. And they were to serve as well as seasons or sacred times, verse 14 says. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 104. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. Now, this entails that the earth's axis was already tilted at day one of creation week. In order for the sun to know when to go down, in order for there to be light and darkness, which already happened before the sun, then the earth's axis was already tilted from that very first, that very first day. And then God says the purpose of these luminaries is to mark off, off days in verse 14. Days. Now, since seasons and years are literal time measures in this passage, it stands to reason that days are also literal days. This is further evidence that the days of the creation week are literal days. While previously the days had been measured by the earth's rotation relative to that temporary light created on day one, from this point they're going to be measured by rotation relative to the sun. And then God says, in addition to that, they're going to mark off years. There were days before the sun was created on day four because the earth was already rotating on its axis. But the sun now enables years, the time of one revolution of the earth around the sun. God is above his creation. He's over it in that he assigns to what he creates the roles that he has for it. 
And then secondly, I say he's over his creation in that he's apart from it. He's apart from it. There's no sense of pantheism in the Bible. Now, do you know what I mean when I say pantheism? Pan means all or everything. And so theism means God. And so pantheism means God is in everything. God is not in a tree. God is not in his creation. He's apart from his creation. And so we, therefore, don't worship the trees. We don't worship created things. Some environmental, environmentalism. There's a good environmentalism. Stewardship of the earth. We're going to see that later in Genesis chapter 1. That God has given stewardship of the earth as a requirement for humanity. That's a good environmentalism. There's an extreme environmentalism that actually becomes worship and religion. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he found it, founded it and established it. Now notice, the earth is the Lord's, not the earth is the Lord. And so if you just want to do a little study, a little background study on Mother Earth, there ain't no such thing as Mother Earth. There is Father God who created Earth. And this earth and this world is his. He is apart from it. He is, he is not in it. And it is not to be worshipped. He is. And so you could define the universe this way. The universe is all that is not God. The universe is all that is not God. God is apart from his universe. He created it. Now, that has some implications. One of them is this. Some people who have looked at the vastness of the world... And especially now with the technology we have and we're able to see how many stars there are. And in fact, they are so very innumerable. They look at that and they think to themselves, then we are just a speck on the third rock from the sun. So who cares what I really do? In the words of that great theologian, Bob Seeger, He says, as he tries to convince a woman to sleep with him for the night. Here's the justification. Look at the stars. So far away. He goes on to say, no one will care, girl. Why? Because the stars are so far away. Now, that was plagiarized later. You know, it doesn't become any better when country music people do it. So when Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton do it, it's still sinful. And so God is over his creation. And I say as well in your outline, God is, he is greater than his creation. He's over it, and he is greater than what he has made. Now, how do we see that in this passage? Remember, I pointed out that the star of all of this is God. And God is named over and over again. But did you notice what's missing in this passage? God doesn't name the sun the greater light. He doesn't name the moon the lesser light. He just calls it the greater light and the lesser light. He doesn't name here for us the stars. He is named, but they're not. Now, he knows all of their names. The psalmist says in Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars and he calls them each by name. He knows the stars by name, but he does not tell us. Why is that? 
You see, remember that theogony thing I was telling you about? Where gods are personified in what what has been made and names are assigned to them? God is greater than what he has made. And God is the one who is to shine forth in his creation, not the things that he has created. And he shows that by naming, identifying himself over and over again, but refusing to name the stars. He knows the names. He knows the names of the innumerable, for us, innumerable. We can't number them, stars. But he does not tell us. Just to give you an idea of how vast and amazing is this planetary and star-studded expanse that God has filled. We've got an eight-minute video for you. Our sun is immense, and its energy output enormous. The core of the sun is a scorching 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Though the sun is 93 million miles from Earth, sunlight is our main source of energy. Energy leaves the sun at the ferocious rate of 5 million tons of matter per second. This goes on day and night, year after year. There are many examples of God's power in nature. The whole universe came about by his word. Psalm 33, 9 says that God spoke and it was finished. He commanded and it stood fast. As one good example, consider our nearest star, the sun. The sun gives off more energy in one second than mankind has produced since Adam and Eve. The sun actually provides its energy by nuclear fusion, converting hydrogen into helium on a grand scale. And uh, this is true of all the stars. In our own Milky Way galaxy, we estimate 100 billion stars. And beyond that, in deep space, we see 100 billion more galaxies. One cannot begin to grasp the kind of energy and power that we're talking about, all created by God's word. The sun heats the earth and it drives all of the weather systems on the earth. Tornadoes, hurricanes, thunderstorms, just plain rain clouds, winds, all of that is driven by the energy coming from the sun. And the energy that we have on earth is only one billionth of the amount of energy that's coming from the sun. To gain perspective, with the aid of computer animation, let's now travel with the Earth to the Sun at 100 times the speed of light. From this view, we begin to appreciate the magnitude of our own star. Over one million Earths would fit inside the Sun. Yet our Sun is an average-sized star. Many stars in our own galaxy dwarf it. Arcturus is the fourth brightest star in the night sky. Though 200 trillion miles away, this orange giant is visible to the naked eye. By moving our sun next to Arcturus, we can grasp its immensity. Arcturus is 100 times brighter 
with a radius 20 times greater than the sun's. Yet even Arcturus appears small when compared with the supergiant Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse has a radius 600 times that of our sun. A reddish star, it shines a remarkable 60,000 times brighter than the sun. However, even Betelgeuse is not the largest star in our galaxy. Several red supergiants in the Milky Way are even larger. Some with a radius 1,500 times that of our sun. Well, one of the things in creation that I think really exhibits God's power is the power released in stars. Uh, the sun, it releases more energy in, in one second than a billion major cities on the earth, if there were a billion, would produce in a year. And that's just released in one second. You can imagine that. And of course, there are stars that are even more powerful than the sun. And just imagine all that power, all those stars, billions of stars in our own galaxy, billions of stars in other galaxies. And yet the Bible describes the creation of all that energy, all that power with the single phrase, he made the stars also. When we consider that these ratios present only a sliver of our Creator's power, certainly we can agree with the psalmist when he exhorts, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Of course, the stars reveal more than raw power. Without the light of the sun, all life on earth would soon perish. The sun's life-giving energy provides a constant reminder of our Creator's steadfast love the God who shines his gift of light on all. The visible universe contains more than 100 billion galaxies. Each of these galaxies has a diameter millions of trillions of miles wide, and each contains hundreds of billions of stars. Though incomprehensible, it is now estimated that the universe holds over a billion trillion stars. Long before the introduction of the telescope, Scripture declared that man would be unable to determine the exact number because there are so many. Of course, the Creator knows the exact number, and Psalm 147 declares that He even calls each star by name. The power to create each of these stars, the wisdom to maintain their stellar courses, and the incredible beauty displayed throughout the universe combine to affirm the Creator's majesty and care. God has made the universe so vast. All man can do is just marvel at this universe, the vastness of it. And I say, God, you are so, you are so great. And I think of what David said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have made, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that you should visit him? What's well, estimated that there are over 100 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, it's estimated that there are over a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. The Bible tells us that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. So if you chew on that for a little bit, think about how big the universe is compared to the earth, which is just uh, the head of a pin by comparison. 
Just how big is God's universe? Traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, we could circle the Earth seven times in one second. However, to travel across the known universe at the speed of light would take 28 billion years or more. Today, most astronomers acknowledge that the universe appears to be expanding. This also agrees with the Bible, which says God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. There are some examples in the Bible of scientific foresight. One example that comes to mind in particular is in Isaiah 40:22, which talks about God stretching out the heavens as a tent or as a curtain. And you might say, well, that, you know, that is written in a poetic way, so we gotta be careful. And yet there are at least ten other places in the Bible where it talks about this, this stretching out of the heavens. And that's something that uh, was only discovered in the uh, 20th century when we found that indeed all the galaxies appear to be, or virtually all of them appear to be moving away from each other as if the entire universe is being, lo and behold, stretched out and expanded just like the Bible says. And that's obviously not something that, that people could have observed in ancient times. That's something that had to have been revealed to them from above. Unimaginably large, containing spectacular galaxies and stunning nebulae. Truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. As was quoted in that video, Psalm number 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? The enormity of the universe, it raises the question that I gave at the beginning. Does God really care about this earth? Does God really care about me? Hear this, friends. Though the earth is not the center of the universe, the earth is the center of God's attention. And that's what I say for you secondly in your outline. Not only is God above his creation, God is focused on his creation. Our creator is focused on earth. Our creator is focused, as unbelievable as it may seem, on earth. In fact, in chapter 1 of the, of the book of Genesis, the very first chapter in the Bible, the word earth is used nine times. Two at the very beginning to indicate the earth is the focus. Have you ever considered, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God sets apart the earth from all the rest of that. Right at the very beginning. And then seven more times after verse 14. When God begins to fill the earth that he has now formed on days one through three. And I say in your outline, God is focused on his creation. And here's how. He provides for his creation. He provides for it. Verse 20. And God said, let the water team with living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning, the fifth day. You see, what God is doing here, this good God that provides for his world because he is focused on the earth. 
What he is doing here is filling what he had previously formed. I said for you last week that in verse number two, the Bible tells us now the earth was formless and empty, formless and empty. And on days one through three, you now have God fashioning, God, God forming. He fashioned by creating light on day one. On day two, he created the sea and the expanse. On day three, the dry land. And now on days four through six, he begins filling what he has formed to remedy the emptiness from verse number two. And so he creates the luminaries to fill the expanse of the sky. And on day five, as I just read, he creates the fish and the fowl to fill the seas and to fill the the air. And on day six, as we're going to see next week, he fills the dry land with land creatures, including including man. God fills all that he has formed, the expanse, the seas and the land. Now, with all of that, it's an indication that God's attention, his focus is on earth and he provides for what he has created in particular on earth. And so although it is that vast, you are not just some cosmic speck out there beyond God's reach. Hardly. In fact, Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And when it says not even a a sparrow falls outside your father's care, it's literally does not fall to the ground apart from your father. The idea there is apart from the father's will. Nothing happens to a sparrow apart from the father's will. And as for you, the most minute details of your life are his focus, including the very hairs of your head. He provides for his creation. And then lastly, he protects his creation. He provides for it and he protects it. I just want to take a few minutes. Hey, just as an aside, whenever it gets to be 1045, then everybody thinks, and if I go past 1045, they think I went too long. But you got you to always remember when I got up. Sometimes I get up later. So I try to do 45 minutes, and I got up at 1010. So do the math. And I got a few more minutes, all right? All right, so stay with me. And God protects his his creation. Now, if you're an unbelieving, atheistic scientist, you've got to account somehow for the fact that God has made this earth in particular And this earth in particular, as far as we know, in everything we know about the universe, only this earth is suitable for life. Did you know that? And if you're one of those scientists, man, you've got to find something else. I mean, if this is all by chance, then what are the chances that the third rock from the sun just has all the stuff in place? Well, it can't be. And so the aforementioned Carl Sagan started something called the Search for Extraterrestrial Life Institute. Believe it or not, it was funded by government money. And they searched for a few decades 
And then the government finally gave up just within the last decade. Finally gave up. We haven't found nothing. We've, we've, we've tried to hear sound out in the universe that would indicate life. We've tried to find any indication that there's life someplace else and we ain't found nothing. Let me, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Let me predict for you. They ain't going to find nothing. The vastness of this universe for the almighty God is nothing but him speaking it into existence. And if God so designates as he has designated that there will be a place where I will focus my attention and where I will make my image bearers and where I will one day come sending God the Son to die on their behalf, then it is nothing for our God to do that. But only believing eyes and believing hearts know that. Meanwhile, unbelievers keep searching. This is called the anthropic principle. I don't have time to go through that, but it's a marvelous principle. The anthropic principle that life on earth is just right for life. And only on earth is it the case. Just a couple of facts and we'll move on. Did you know if the sun were just a little bit closer to the earth, we would burn up? Did you know if the sun were just a little bit farther, we would freeze? The sun is set exactly where God positioned it to be for life on earth. The moon, the lesser light. It is the moon that causes the tides of the ocean. Did you know that? If the moon were not positioned exactly where the moon is positioned, then the tides would overrun the land. God has placed them there. And he has placed the earth precisely so that life can take place and flourish here. And he protects that creation by positioning everything else around it and for it. That means, friends, that God has the ability to focus his entire attention. His entire attention on us. This omniscient God, this all-knowing God, it is nothing for him to focus every bit of his attention at every moment of every day on every creature that he has made. (laughs) I can only focus on you guys right now, sort of. And like half of you are still focused on me. But God is focused on us every moment of every day, this omniscient, powerful creator. In fact, God's omniscience is defined this way. God knows all things past, present, and future by an eternal act of intuition immediately, simultaneously, exhaustively, and truly. Here's what that means for you and me. It means that although this universe is so vast, it's beyond our comprehension. That our God is so great that we cannot comprehend his greatness. This God is all good. For his creatures as well. And God is focused on his world. And he provides for it. And he protects it. And it means for you and me. What Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5. You can cast all your anxiety on him. Notice that last phrase. Because he cares for you. The God of this vast universe. Cares for you. 
The vastness of the universe should point us to the majesty of the God who has made it all and the goodness of the God who provides for it and protects it. I remember as an 18-year-old young man on my senior trip, graduating from high school, first time I had ever been to Florida, first time I had ever been to the ocean. And I will never forget standing on the beach and observing the power of the ocean and thinking to myself, what an awesome God who made this ocean. What an awesome God who has made me. And as we're going to see next week, has made me and you to bear his image. Oh, dear friends, the implications of this are staggering. They're wonderful if you grasp them. But if you reject them, they're sad in the extreme. Our young people are living in despair. Did you know that? Young people are living in despair. Young people are taking their own lives. Young people are harming themselves with drugs, with alcohol. Do you know why? Because they have been taught that they are a speck on an insignificant planet in this vast universe. And the true and living God who made them says, I love you. And I've come to earth to die for you. And I focus my attention on you. And I provide for you. And I protect you. Yesterday with our deacons. We had our monthly leadership team meeting. And as I opened our meeting in prayer, I thanked God, as I often do, for one of the great blessings that he has bestowed upon me and upon all of us, if we remember it. That every morning when I awake, I know that my life counts for eternity. Think about that. What I do today at every moment of every day counts for eternity. Why? Because the God who made this world is focused on the world he made, cares for it, and loves those in it. Your take-home truth. God is great. And God is good. And so we thank him. You want to fill in, fill in for our food. And so we thank him for everything. Let's bow together. Our Creator, our Father, our God, our Savior, we praise you. We praise you because you have revealed yourself. You have made yourself known in what you have made. But Lord, Christless eyes are unable to see and continue to search for someone and something else. And though they come up empty, not only in their research, come up empty in their lives, Sin causes the endless search. Oh, Lord, but you have told us that you have made all of these things, you the creator, that men might reach out and seek you. I pray, Father, the God of this vast universe, that in this sacred moment, as you put your full attention on this room and those of us in this room, that your Holy Spirit would be like a laser to the heart of some here. And that they would see, perhaps for the first time, that they are creatures made by an all-powerful but an ever-loving God who is great and who is good and who has made them for himself. 
May they see, as your servant Augustine said centuries ago, O Lord, our hearts are restless. And they will remain restless until we find our rest in you. May the search end at the cross of Jesus. O Holy Spirit, draw some out of the world into yourself. And may you draw those who know you to praise not only today, but every moment of every day for who you are and what you have done. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.